Let's value the Australian way this Easter at Coles. And to help make your Easter shopping easier, we've added thousands of extra home delivery windows and thousands of extra click and collect windows. Shop online at coles.com.au. Millions of despairing men, women and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everybody into the Garden of Doom. And this week we're going to be going into a topic which I think is a little bit different than where we've gone before. But we're very happy to and welcome into the show Luke Michael Ironside. Luke, thanks very much for, for joining the show today. Um, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. Very glad to be joining you and everyone today. Terrific. Uh, I have Luke's bio here, and I'm going to read it. Uh, Luke Michael Ironside is a theosophical lecturer and writer from the UK and a member of the Theosophical Society, Adyar and the Temple of the People. Am I pronouncing Adyar right? You are, yes, Adyar. A theosophical group based in Halcyon, California. He has lectured at Lodge's International, has written for various theosophical journals around the world. He formerly served as the president of the Pravana Lodge of the Theosophical Society in the Philippines. He was a regular lecturer at the national headquarters and in 2018 was a speaker at the 142nd International Convention at Adyar. Having a deep interest in Christian mysticism, Luke is also active in the Old Catholic Apostolic Church, uh, where he is a cleric in minor orders. At present, Luke is serving as the director of the Virtual Center of Theosophical Studies 
as a delegate at large of the Temple of the People and General Secretary of the Old Catholic Education Society. So a lot of credentials and titles there, pretty long history. Um, and I'd be lying to the audience if I told you I knew what all of that is, but I'm sure Luke will clarify some of it or, or elaborate on some of it. And we can probably start with that shortly. But this show is going to be on the, and it may go in different directions, but it's mostly on the theosophical uh, underpinnings of Lucifer and Luciferianism. Uh, I reached out to Luke through the Nephilim Anthropolo uh, uh, Anthropology Conference, um, which many long-term listeners know that, uh, that I've been affiliated with for you know, probably over a year now, and, and lots of our guests have come from there or been extensions of their extensions. Um, and I was looking for a show on Luciferianism. I think a lot of you know that I've been planning one for a long time. I still plan that one. And as many of you know, I don't, you know, I, I always have a sort of a cache of, of shows recorded for the just in case. And I'm hoping to do the, to publish these shows back to back, but that defend, depends on a certain inhuman and he knows who he is. Um, but in any event, we're going to not have Luke waiting here as a pot of plant. I'm going to say, Luke, t you know, tell, tell us a little bit about what some of those groups are, what some of those titles means. And I, I guess are, when you say old Catholic, I mean, are you a part of the Catholic Church? Um, I'll let you take it from there. Right. Yeah. So there's a few different activities I'm involved in or a few different areas, uh, as you mentioned in my biography. However, they all intersect. There is a relationship between each of them. And so I think it's easiest to begin with theosophy because I would say that that's at the root of all of the various groups I'm a part of, but also just at the root of my life's work up to this point. And so my quest for knowledge throughout my life has led me again and again to something which has been termed by certain philosophers as theosophy, by others as the ageless wisdom or the primordial wisdom. So we have these various names, depending on the tradition, referring to what is essentially the same thing. And the way I first discovered theosophy was um, I used to sometimes go or quite often actually go to the library near my house when I was living in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, I'd read through the you know, the history section, I gradually came across the sort of religious section, and right next to the religious and philosophy section was the occult section that was sort of just mixed into it. Now, I was raised in a really sort of Baptist Christian family in New Zealand, um, so obviously quite different from what I'm involved in right now, but I never felt that it sat quite right for me. I was always fascinated in both history, science, philosophy, and these were the kinds of subjects that were really discouraged um, in terms of my Christian upbringing. You know, the idea that the world is 6,000 years old didn't really work in terms of what I was reading in the history books. Sure. And so I, I, you know, I'd, I'd be the kid that was always getting in trouble at school, but not for the things that you would expect a kid in school to get in trouble for, instead of, you know, being the rebellious type, um, 
kid who didn't like studying. I was I liked to study. I was a nerd, and I got in trouble for being a nerd. So it's like the opposite situation because I went to you know a pretty fundamentalist school, and it was from reading through just all these different subjects. You know, I was I was reading about Eastern philosophies. So I was comparing that to you know German philosophy, reading about different religious traditions, Judaism.、Um, Christianity in its various forms, Islam, Hinduism—just reading through all these various sections—and I stumbled across a book called *The Secret Doctrine*、uh, in two volumes by Madame Blavatsky. Now, this is—if you've seen this book before—it's—it's not—it's not a short book. It's a very lengthy, complicated read. Um, but I, I think I must have been around the age of fourteen or fifteen when I first、uh, laboured through that. So, because again, it's not an easy read. Right. And when, this, when most of us are reading Dune or Foundation or <laughs> or, or the, you know, Lord of the Rings or nothing,、um, you're reading like a, a grimoire. Like, well, I'm picturing one of these giant leather books from Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's you know the kind of idea. Yes. Exactly. But this this book is fascinating because it covered everything. the The range of the the range of material included in this book is it's subtitled、um, it's subtitled、uh, the comparative analysis of religion, philosophy, and science, and it definitely delves into each of these regions, but much more as well. So I was learning about everything from the ancient Egyptian rituals to Um, modern metaphysical thinkers to you know scientific developments in physics and so on. There was a, an amazing range of materials included in this in this book, and so this was really the the beginning for me. So I, I studied as what could be called perhaps an independent theosophist、uh, for about、uh, for approximately another six six or seven years before. Joining the Theosophical Society officially、um, after moving to England, and after joining them, I was—I I found it's a very active society. The Theosophical Society is active in around、uh, approximately seventy countries around the world.、Um, They—they've been in continuous operation since eighteen seventy-five. Um, they've even splintered into a few different groups now, all using the name Theosophical Society, which is another confusion、yeah. for some. As is the case with every group. I mean, yes, no, nobody stays together. <laughs> right, right. I think that's yeah, that's part of human nature and, and group psychology, isn't it? That, that this simply happens with all groups, regardless is, of good intentions. By the way, this is why I never buy into, or not totally into, any sort of bloodline or star chamber international cabal thing. I I've been I've been the member of you know a steering committee on fraternity. I've been on the board of two different you know tax exempt not for profits,、uh, one an international trade group, the other、uh, purely educational, a graduate school.、Uh, I I've been in a, a condo association, two homeowners association, and, and involved with two different like you know pool clubs with associations. And the only thing I can tell you is. is, is Is you can't get people to agree on the shade of taupe, let let alone on world world control. Right, exactly, and yeah. So I think that happens in all yeah in all groups, as you say, unfortunately. And maybe it was perhaps my distrust of groups, in fact, that 
uh, caused my hesitation to join the Theosophical Society for some time. But then again, there are certain advantages to being in a group, things that can be accomplished through group effort, which one can simply not achieve on one's own. Um, and that was one of the biggest attractions for me to be involved in a fraternal group with others who were seeking similar things to myself. Yes. And the, the Theosophical Society actually has three main objects. Firstly, to form a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. And this really attracted me because here's a society, much unlike my upbringing, the, the church of my upbringing, which says that everyone is welcome and essentially that we are all equal and we are all unified at, in, at the most fundamental level. At our very, in our very fundamental natures, we are unified, we are one. This was very different from the, the creed of some certain segments of uh, Baptist Christianity where, you know, with that sort of holier-than-thou attitude and that only certain groups of people are saved and the rest are sinners, this kind of distinction. So here, suddenly, everyone is welcome. Everyone is, everyone is a part of the same journey, the same spiritual journey. And secondly, uh, the, the second object is to encourage the study of comparative religion, philosophy, and science. And it was that sort of academic bent, that intellectual bent, that initially interested me. So there was an obvious attraction for me there. I've always been fascinated in knowledge and education, and particularly in these three areas. And thirdly, to investigate the unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in man. And this is the sort of occult angle here. The idea that we don't know everything about ourselves. There's so much more to learn. And this is something that even science agrees with because science is constantly discovering new, new things, new, new knowledge, new, new areas, which could never have been predicted. You know, it's the, our interpretation of reality is constantly shifting and changing and new models of reality are coming about and we're realizing again and again how inadequate each of those models of reality is because reality is just so so much vaster and grander and and more perplexing than we could ever imagine so it's amazing to compare the shift in our models of reality from 1000 years ago sure but even more just from 50 years ago or 100 years ago when we considered this to be one single universe and our universe was considered to be the, the limits of our universe with the solar system. Yeah. Now it's a good two, yeah, it's, two it's of incredible. The, two of the great philosophers uh, in my mind, one is Arthur C. Clarke, uh, who said that uh, magic is just science that we haven't discovered yet. Um, or the, he said the reverse way, I'm not sure. And then of course, uh, a lot of the audience knows me from my, the thing that's really holding me back in life, which is my fandom of professional wrestling. And one of the great philosophers, Rowdy Roddy Piper, said, just when you think you know all the answers, I change the questions. And I think that as a, both of those things together, both those thoughts together is a perfect summation of what you just sort of said. Right, right, exactly. And so it was, yeah, it, it was really my curiosity and my passion for discovering new things that led me 
to the Theosophical Society. I very quickly became an active member in my lodge in Worthing, England, a very small lodge, um, but the leader of the president of the lodge was the former president of the National Society in England. So I made some contacts quite quickly. Um, I started attending and lecturing at events around the country. And a few months after joining, I was off to India to attend the international convention. Wow. So there I met approximately a thousand delegates from all around the world, from everywhere around the world. We stayed at the, the headquarters, which is the same headquarters where Madame Blavatsky, the founder, used to live and walk and spend her time and the subsequent leaders of the Theosophical Society since that time. So, so this, fascinating long history. Is this a Christian group or is it multi-dominational? Right. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, the Theosophical Society is, is non-denominational in that it's not attached to any religion. However, members of all religions are can be found, or of all religions and none, can be found in the Theosophical Society. And if you were to visit Adya, the headquarters, you will actually find on the grounds a Christian church, a Zoroastrian shrine, uh, a Muslim a Muslim um, mosque, and you'll, you'll find various temples, a Buddhist temple, a Hindu temple, many of these still in active use. And the members of the Theosophical Society are from all religions and none, because the in the Theosophical understanding, Theosophy is the root of all religions. All religions are Theosophical. All religions came from Theosophy. So Theosophy being the ageless wisdom is the, the basic knowledge, the basic wisdom, the foundation from which all the other religions later sprang. If we were to consider Theosophy an ocean, in fact there is a book called The Ocean of Theosophy, then we could consider the various religions as being the streams, streams flowing from this ocean of theosophy. Mm. And in the teachings of theosophy, each of these religions, the emergences of these religions was not a random event. In fact, certain teachers came about at the right times throughout humans' evolution to bring these teachings to the world. So the advent of, let's say, Hinduism, uh, came about at the time in history when this was mo Hinduism had the lessons most needed for the development of the human race. At a later point, the development of Buddhism came about when certain teachings of Hinduism had perhaps, perhaps become corrupted and needed to be corrected. And so fresh teachings were brought and past teachings were rectified, were brought back in track with the age of wisdom. The same thing can be seen with Judaism and Christianity or with Judaism and, uh, is, and, and Islam, these sort of different, very significant, very historically significant uh, faiths emerging at certain times and changing the, the path of human development. But each of these being rooted in theosophy doesn't mean that in their exoteric outward forms remain to be theosophy. So another fundamental distinction is the difference between the esoteric or the occult or the inner teachings and the exoteric, the outer or public teachings. So theosophy teaches that all religions are identical in their esoteric teachings, that they teach the same things fundamentally in their occult or esoteric form, 
but they teach different things in their exoteric form. The exoteric form being related more to social conduct, the rules of the culture, the rules of the times, right? So these are sort of rules to do with, um, or restrictions to do with clothing, to do with marriage, to do with ritual, to do with worship, all of the, and the names, maybe the words that are used to clothe these ideas, the names of God, the names of these certain things, these change, these are human, these are fleeting, but the ideas underneath are theosophy. So that's, that's theosophy in a nutshell. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a, it's a big nutshell. That's a, that's a, that's, that's one giant walnut right there. Um, but I, but I think I understand basically what you're saying is that, you know, that the, the, to make it simple, a lot of these sort of these, uh, pan-cultural commonalities in myths and legends and or, origin stories and sort of the similar floods and Garden of Eden type, you know, or couplings, uh, whether the couplings are the, the first man and woman or the couplings are, the first two gods or, you know, the sort of twins and everyone's been, uh, you know, spun out from that, um, you know, uh, sort of is, is, I guess, at the, the, the base of the ocean and the ocean sort of grew, grew larger. And, uh, you know, I, I like your metaphor of streams. I, in my head, as you were saying, I was actually picturing like little islands popping up and some of the islands yeah. are bigger and some of them are smaller. Um, but yeah, so, uh, where does our friend Lucifer fit into this? And just for the purposes of, of this conversation, your context, is is Lucifer the a fallen angel? Is Lucifer the twin brother of Michael? Is Lucifer one and the same as Satan or you know Azazel or Armin or all the you know there's this depending on what text you read or what what you hear. I mean, the, the interesting thing is it's the word Satan, I think, appears like once or in the Bible and, and it was never actually said to be the devil. At some point, Satan was determined to be the devil, um, you know, but also Lucifer is considered to be a devil. There's the TV show that's been on for like a thousand years. Well, like five uh, called Lucifer. Um, you know, Luciferianism is, you know, Satanism. Meanwhile, the Church of Satan may or may not be really about being atheist and the and the and the moniker satan is like a is like a joke like a middle finger to the world but other people don't believe that they think that's just a cover story so i'm i'm you know so maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit or at least put context into you know your worldview as to what is you know who is lucifer what is lucifer right definitely okay well first of all it's worth making the the disclaimer that theosophy is not related to the movements which uh, call themselves Luciferian or Satanic yes. or anything. Um, in fact, this this whole talk came about from a comment which was made in the um, Nephilim Am uh, Anthropology Conference, where mm -hmm. uh, in my talk I mentioned theosophy and my talk was about the theosophical perspectives on giants and someone took offense at there being a theosophical talk included saying that Madame Blavatsky the founder was a Satanist and she said uh, she supported Lucifer who is Satan and I basically responded saying well actually there's a lot of academic research which suggests that perhaps Satan and Lucifer are not one and the same um, so yes 
first of all, to, to touch on that. So the identification of Lucifer with Satan comes from a particular verse um, in the Bible, where, which in some later translations, in, in, this is uh, in the book of Isaiah, um, where the king of Babylon is referred to as the morning star. And the morning star here from the Hebrew was was translated uh, was translated to a Latin term Lucifer, yes. And this was actually, according to many biblical scholars, more of a a lowercase Lucifer rather than a you know proper noun in the sense of being someone's name. Like a so it's, it seems to have been simply a matter of mistranslation, where a human being, the human king of Babylon was being referred to as the morning star, as in a great king who had fallen from power, well, right? We, this kind of... We could use Game of Thrones idea. again. Yes, uh, yes. I, I think it was, what was it, the Aegon Targaryen, whoever it was with it, they called him the Mad King. Sure, sure. Yeah, so it's, it's similar, I think, to all kings in history, or, or you know, the, the idea that you you rise too high and eventually you, you lose everything. Ozymandias, the famous... Uh, yeah, a poem about this. Yes, Nero. Idea, you know, yes, yeah, exactly. You know, after you get a certain amount of power, you rise up to a certain degree of power. It's inevitable that this will eventually collapse. Yes, and so it seems that what happened was Lucifer here was a descriptive term or a metaphorical term, if you like, for a king who had fallen like a star from power. Now, this was later interpreted, um, where this happened is a, a little bit, um, it's still a matter of contention, but it seems to perhaps been in the time of Pope Gregory the Great, that this was interpreted as referring to Satan, because before that time, there was no evidence of this passage ever being interpreted as referring to Satan. And in the Judaic tradition, I don't believe it is either. What, yes. uh, when year-wise is Pope Greg Gregory the Great's uh, term? I, yes, that was, um, let me just, confirm. Oh, yeah, so that, that was around the 6th century. Okay, so in the 500s. Yes, yeah. And so this was sort of a reinterpretation of the phrase, right, it, to refer now to Satan. Before that, there wasn't really even a conception of Satan as the devil, in Christianity, we certainly don't find this in Judaism. In Judaism, Satan is more the, the judge of Yahweh rather than some the accused, the, like, the prosecutor is is the how, prosecutor is how, is yeah. how the Jewish scholars I put on the show has described them. They said exactly. Satan actually means the accuser, and so I don't know how much of a in our pre-production we talked about how you were sort of a geek and a nerd. Me too, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, and so much in the MCU, if you look at it, has underpinnings to like mythologies and, and theosophy. But like uh, Rowan was the accuser, uh, and so uh, you know you can you can take out Rowan, who is the Lee Pace character, uh, uh, sort of Thanos's first you know minion, who sort of went into business for himself, uh, and it's called Satan the accuser. But you know Thanos was still the boss. Uh, you know, so, you know, that was sort of the original, or at least acute, according to the Jewish scholars I've had on, that was originally Satan's role. He was just one of many of the, whatever the high, I, I think the, 
the what is it the seraphim are the highest level of the angels on Okay, so he was yes. one of the, the, he was just one of the seraphim. And then I guess after that is the cherubim, which are more of the, you know, the the, the, the rank and file angels, uh, you know, the, the, the less strong ones, which, I mean, in and of itself, uh, uh, I should do a, have a show one time on, on like the different rankings of angels and try to compare that with, you know, you know, uh, paganism whether you've got the king of the gods and maybe the queen of the gods and then you've got sort of the stronger gods and then you've got sort of the rank and file gods and then the demigods and how different is that really from you know the ranking of the angels and then the nephilim and then sort of the you know their, their offspring which might be giants maybe they're not um you know the, they're sort of demigods or you know demi demons or whatever anyway uh, that that's i just always find that so uh, interesting, but a lot of what you need to know, know, folks, if you watch the MCU and you watch some of these things again, <clears throat> you'll you'll start to see stuff in there. Certainly. And yes, that's what I think is really fascinating. That likely in the time of Jesus, there would not have been a concept of Satan. Yeah. And now we consider, we look at Christianity, and if we were to sum it up in just you know a couple of key words, you know, Satan would be one of them. Wouldn't he? You know, he's sort of the big bad guy. So, but interestingly, in Jesus's time, Satan would have been a very small topic for discussion, if at all. So, Satan has been sort of enlarged into something that he isn't even, according to the according to the um, earlier Christian and Judaic teachings. And further, Satan and Lucifer aren't even the same being. So then again, we have another confusion. And so Satan. Um, yeah, Satan is more of a sort of judge-prosecutor type figure, like we find in the book of Job. Right, in Job. We don't find him referred to as the devil. We don't find any mention of hell as such. We have Sheol, but that's different than hell. They're not really comparable. Um, and in Judaism, they also wouldn't find any comparison between the, say, evangelical conception of hell and, yes, Sheol, which is more of a sort of place to to go after death while waiting for uh, a sort of redemption from my understanding um but yeah so and so lucifer in theosophy then obviously cannot be seen to have his origins in can, I, can i just try to chime with just for the audience if you haven't listened to the show my, the episode I, I forget the number but it's only uh it's probably in the late 70s uh it's called garden of delights and there were two different Jewish scholars on there, and the, and they go into this also. I think around episode in the late forties, early fifties. Uh, there's another episode called Kabbalah uh, because there was a, a Orthodox rabbi. Interestingly enough, he's Mexican but lives in Israel, so he's Israeli Mexican. Um, <clears throat> and he talked about Kabbalah, but we also touched on all of these things. So if you want to know about what the Jewish definition of Satan is and any sort of devil and sort of Afterlife, both those shows are excellent places to get three actually strikingly similar perspectives, which, uh, you know, frankly, as a show host, I was a little bit disappointed in because I wanted to hear a little bit more debate. Uh, but it's interesting because one of the things that, listen, I don't think it's any secret to anyone that, 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 that I, you know, I have by birth, I'm Jewish, um, by practice and belief. I don't really have religion. I, I, I'm comfortable saying I have some sort of form of spirituality. 
unimportant. But the, the point is, is that one of the things that the Jewish people say, and actually uh, the, the Islamic people say it too, and very articulately said by uh, Sheriff Hassan in Midnight Mass, the, the Netflix show, which is amazing, um, is that the writing all over the world is the same and the inter interpretations basically all over the world are basically the same from generation to generation. Um, whereas one of my guests, Gretchen Cornwell, I mean, we've, I've had lots of shows exploring Christianity. There was one with uh, Chris Ams, who's terrific, who we went over the Gnostic uh, Gospels, um, but also one on the different uh, denominations of Christianity. But also I had Gretchen Cornwell on, who said that there are 35,000 different denominations of Christianity in the world. And that's, wow, that, that, that's a big town. Yes. And so it's, it's interesting how, you know, one, one religion or one scripture, let's say, can result in such a plurality of, you know, such a diversity of interpretations. Well, right? Part, part of it's language, right? I mean, the, the, yes. the Bible was originally written in uh, Old Hebrew, then translated to more modern Hebrew, then translated into Seleucid Greek, probably somewhere along, along the lines to more European, more modern Greek, from there to Latin, and then from there to English and lots of other. And, you know, there's a, there's a cliche lost in translation for a reason. Certainly. Yes. And that, that's something I often emphasize as a lecturer, as a public speaker. I, I often emphasize to, um, to those who, you know, attend my events and so on in my talks that that the language has huge limitations. Language is simply inadequate for dealing with some of these ideas. And I think that's something that all mystics and all philosophers have found throughout the history of, of humanity, that language is, is not quite perfect enough to express these ideas or many of, uh, you know, not, not without causing misunderstandings and misinterpretations and this is always the case that in the secret doctrine referring back to that there are actually certain um symbols which are employed to express some of these metaphysical concepts because perhaps pictures express it better than than words possibly can um, so the idea that something like the bible can be taken like a, a modern english translation of the bible can be taken as the literal word of God, I mean, I, I just, I can't see that as being um, in any way rational. Um, I, I just, I don't think it's possible to, to take something like that literally. And even if we were to go back to the original Hebrew or Greek, I don't think we could either take that as being, you know, the literal word of God either, because I, I think there is no way for words to be perfect. Words are inherently imperfect. Yeah, I had Reverend Jim Willis on one episode. Again, I guess another shameless plug for another episode that was probably probably in the uh, around 70 or in the 60s. Um, and uh, he's, he's well, he's a reverend, obviously. But that, that's what he said. He said that, that the word of God has been corrupted by so many different interpretations and editing. I, I, he wrote a book called Censoring God. And he meant that literally, that, not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, that, that there were people that were editing. There was a, like a committee. Like everyone thinks it was Moses writing on Mount Sinai. Uh, no, they were, there, was a, there was like a committee even then sort of changing the words 
and the and the thoughts and and then of course the uh, New Testament was you know written over the course of you know like a hundred years between the several councils uh, and there were you know there were multiple that's what the Gnostic Gospels are the apocryphal Gospels are Gospels that were decided not to be uh, divine canon. And, you know, we were left with, like, I think, the four Gospels, which made it into the Bible, and there's 30-something that weren't, and then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and no one quite agrees on, on what those are. Interestingly enough, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, neither Satan nor Lucifer are even really particularly ranking angels. I don't, I'm not, I don't think Lucifer was even named. Satan, I think, is just one of the minor lieutenants. If I remember correctly, I think that the leader was Azazel, um, so like he would be the Satan, he would be the, the, the Lucifer that, that, that led the, the, the revolt against God. Uh, and then like Raphael, like, you know, uh, buried him in Duodal, not even hell. Like, in, I don't know what Duodal is, but, um, that's uh, probably another conversation for another day. Um, but it, it, it's, it's just so interesting that in so many different places, you sort of have a different, um, leader. And then I, I also... I can't even remember which guest this was or where I heard this or read it, but that the Archangel Armin was the leader and, you know, and and, and was killed and buried in Mount Armin, which is Armenia. Uh, and interestingly enough, the Armenia is the first state that made, that made Christianity its official yes. state religion, but that's where the sort of the revolting angel uh, or demon or whatever uh, you know, you know the country's basically named after uh, that, and I, I never even heard of Armin until a, a few months ago. So I don't know how I'm going to use the word factual. This is in 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 scope of doctrinal text, not that it historically happened or different, but it's just so it's just so wild to me that there's basically six or seven different versions of who the leader of the you know the revolting angels who morphed into the devil would be or maybe they all were influenced by some different devil and we still don't know the devil's name certainly it's interesting you mentioned armenia i used to live in armenia so i did visit many of those early where, churches where haven't you lived <laughs> yes yeah, so I, I do move around a lot i'm currently in brazil actually oh my um, gosh. but yes Fol I do move around folks you're not seeing him this guy looks like he's 23 years old but he, he he's it sounds like he's lived the life of like well, like he's a vampire. Are you a vampire? <laughs> well, I am. I am twenty-seven, actually. But yes, I've I've traveled a lot in the past, especially over the past six years. Um, I have been traveling from one place to another, uh, which has also helped a lot of this has been for my studies to appreciate the different cultures, to have a better understanding of these different traditions. And Armenia was particularly fascinating in going back to the early Christianity and seeing that. Um, as compared to some of the later forms. And yes, you, you mentioned the, the fact that perhaps this figure of the devil in the Bible was a sort of compound of various um, fallen, fallen angels. And I, we also find this idea in the creator God as well, the creator God originally, originally being multiple deities, if we go back to the earlier... Um, some of the vocabulary that's employed in terms of the Elohim and some of the um, earlier traditions suggesting a plurality, a, a plurality rather than a singular entity. And then this sort of being morphed into a singular entity at a later 
stage. So it's quite interesting. And I think it's that that progression that we find in all religions, I think, or all religious traditions from a sort of polytheism to a monotheism, the sort of tendency towards singularity or towards unity. Yes. And fascinating. Do you, have you in your travels and studies sort of uh, come to some consensus in your own mind as to who or what, let's just use Satan because everyone knows what Satan's supposed to mean anyway. Uh, Or, you know, well, well, yeah, Satan. Uh, Like I'm struggling even now whether I should say Lucifer or not because that's sort of how we met sort of through that word. Um, Either Satan slash Lucifer. Have you come to some consensus as to what or who you think that is? Certainly. Well, again, I, I think we do need to distinguish the two, and that's something we can touch on upon uh, a bit more in a moment in some of the or- the pagan origins of Lucifer, but not of Satan. But to, to answer for Satan, first of all, I would say that Satan is an invention and, at best, a symbol. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we were to take the modern idea of Satan, if we go back to the more traditional interpretation as the prosecutor or judge of God, okay, I think that's something I can get behind as well. Um, but to take the modern idea of Satan, I do think it is a reason why this has become such a, you know, a, a big part of, of culture and society. I think it's quite inevitable that you know, if it wasn't Satan, it would have been some other figure that took on that role, Satan represents everything that we are afraid of. It represents the darkness, represents um, oppression, represents ignorance, and especially ignorance, I think. Um, Satan it represents all of those, and that's the opposite of Lucifer, Lucifer being the, the light bringer, he who illumines, Ill- he who brings forth wisdom and knowledge. Satan's sort of the opposite in many ways, the, he who... Um, creates darkness, clouds over the truth, clouds over the you know, the great deceiver, that kind of idea. And I, I don't take this in any kind of literal way. I see it more as a symbol of our fear of the unknown, our fear of darkness, our fear of death. All those sorts of ideas are then encapsulated and personified in the figure of Satan. So, so sort of the yin and yang of boogeyman. Yes, certainly, certainly. So I, I think there is a truth to, say, the yin and yang idea. There is a fun mental duality in existence in the universe there is some kind of um dichotomy between light and dark and perhaps we could say good and evil as well but i think those terms are so often simplified and put into human human interpretations that they sort of lose their meaning mm-hmm. you know we say um we, 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 what we call evil is too simple and too small for what the term should actually encapsulate same for same for the opposite as well but i think there's some kind of fundamental dichotomy which eventually disappears in the unity of existence and that's a teaching in theosophy that from nothing came forth the one and from the one came forth the two and from the two came forth the the plurality and the the, the great diversity that we find in existence now. So there is this sort of sequence um, in theosophical cosmogony as well, which I think relates here to these ideas of good and evil and light and dark. What does cosmogony mean? Well, cosmogony means the birth of the cosmos, the origin of the cosmos. Thank you. Sorry. 
as opposed I, to say cosmology, the study of the cosmos. Yeah. I, I gotta tell you, I, I, I am thinking that there's some serious Benjamin Button or, or pink the picture of Dorian Gray thing going on here. I, I, I cannot believe how much is, I, I mean, I, I have misspent my 53 years for sure compared to your 27 years. I mean, this, this, I, I'm feeling very bad about myself right now. And, uh, and you know, I, yeah, I like to fancy myself as a fairly uh, well-educated, uh, knowledgeable person. But whew, I, I'm going to school here, but that's the purpose of a guest. That, 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 that's really the purpose of the show is for me to, uh, so that I don't have to do my own studies, uh, is that I find people who are really smart and really interesting and they can teach me and, and, and bring the audience along with it. So, wow. Uh, but I, I, I still think that there's some dark secret here, right? I don't, maybe there's some dark magic at play here. I'm not, I'm not sure. I hope, you don't, I, don't, I hope you don't mind my little continuing joke here. No, no, of course not. No, I've actually found that becoming a public speaker has been an incredibly humbling experience because I've become gradually more and more aware of how little I know. So I think actually that the, in some ways the opposite is uh, has been my experience. Just the more you research, the more you go into these things, like you, you, you reach a certain point where you think, well, I've discovered so much and you go a little bit deeper and you realize actually that's just the tip of the iceberg and there's so, so much more to learn. And I'm constantly learning new things from people every day, all the time I'm, I'm learning you know, new, new ideas. And I, I love learning. I love hearing other people's ideas. I love realizing how little I know because it means there's so much more to learn. So that's actually one of the beauties of existence and of learning. I think that there's always so much more well, well to said, discover. Sir. Well said. So let, let's bring us back to where I sort of sidetracked us, which is sort of my thing. Um, and as I said to a, another guest, uh, it's since, since, I sidetrack people a lot. It's my job to remember where we left off. And so you were uh, differentiating Satan from Lucifer. And, and that's sort of where I took us aside. So, um, so you know, please continue. Yes. And so I, I said in, in answer to your question, um, what is Satan from my perspective? I said I need to first differentiate between the two because Lucifer has a different origin than Satan. So actually, when we go back to this passage in Isaiah, which was uh, referred to as the morning star or the shining one, um, which was interpreted initially as being, say, a common noun and later reinterpreted as being a proper noun, uh, there is a reason for that because a character called Lucifer did exist um, in pre-Christian times in Roman mythology. And so Lucifer already existed as a somewhat different figure in Roman folklore. And there was a relationship between Lucifer and the planet Venus. Uh, Lucifer was originally the name of the planet Venus, and it was personified as being a male figure bearing a torch, the light bearer. Oh, interesting. So it's a, a male deity. Um, usually depicted as a winged child or a youthful, a god of youth, a youthful god um, carrying a torch, sometimes referred to as the Dawnbringer as well. And he was also, yeah, he was presented as a sort of deity that heralds the dawn or brings about the light, brings about illumination 
all of these kinds of associations. However, he was a very minor deity. Was um, Venus the planet? Uh, is, is was that the one that was called the Morning Star for years? Yes, yes. Venus was referred to as the Morning Star because of Venus's association with Lucifer. Lucifer. Venus used to be called Lucifer in well, Roman times. Well, it doesn't sound like world. a. I mean, the description certainly doesn't sound very devilish. It sounds no. like it sounds like the opposite. In fact, it's weird because the, the term "the shining ones" not weird. It probably makes perfect sense. But the term "the shining ones." It's all over the place in the, in in history. Uh, I, I mean, I believe that the, there was a Persian word "rus," which is where the word "Russia" comes from, which was that what they named the river. And because the people on the other side were uh, lighter and, and blonder, I think they called the, the, the they named the, the, the river the Rus, which in I guess that Proto-Persian or Persian meant the shining ones. And then the the, the tribe, the Alans, was I believe that also means. The shining ones and and the Allens, you know, were uh, a notable tribe that you know, uh, you know, became ironic, uh, but also were part of the Scythians and and you know, all over sort of that northern European and and into the steppes. So the the, the shining ones are you know is, is something that, that is repeated time and time again. It's interesting that there's a as you were saying a minor deity and that and again like I said it's my job when I when I meandered to remember where you left off and that's where you were that Lucifer was a minor right. deity in the uh, Roman paganism. And interestingly, uh, the mother of Lucifer was Aurora. And Aurora in Roman mythology was the goddess of the dawn. So another association with the dawn. And Aurora was also, uh, she, she's known by various other names, but she's also thought to be uh, the equivalent of the Greek Aos, uh, who was a titaness and goddess of the dawn another um, sort of dawn goddess and the various European dawn goddesses were sought, were thought to correspond. And, and these were considered to be the mother, the mother of uh, Lucifer. And she would renew herself every morning and fly across the sky to announce the arrival of the sun. So again, this light bringer association and the dawn is always associated with youth in Roman uh, mythology, which is quite a logical uh, connection. And so while Lucifer was not very well known, but was a character in Roman mythology, Aurora was much better known. In fact, she is mentioned in Homer's Iliad, in the Aeneid by Virgil, and in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, we find a mention of her. So, so we have this much more significant character, the mother of Lucifer, and their associations are basically the same, the same associations of youth, of renewal, and so we get this kind of idea perhaps of reincarnation, the idea that the young becomes young again on mm -hmm. a regular basis, that the light returns after the period of darkness. And so when we're asking in what sense is Lucifer used in theosophy, we're starting to see where it, where it comes in, that it's not drawing from any kind of biblical association, but rather from the Roman association. In fact, one of the earliest theosophical magazines was called Lucifer. And today there is a, a, a few separate, uh, not, not, not continuations, but other magazines in the theosophical community. One of them is called The Light Bearer, published by the Canadian Theosophical Association, and another called Lucifer, The Light Bearer, which is uh, published by Theosophical Society Point Loma. And so this tradition 
continues. And on the cover of these magazines is a picture of Lucifer, the youth, carrying a torch. And so straight away we get the Roman association, not the biblical association. I have two questions. One, we know that a lot of Roman mythology just basically, uh, you know, sort of usurp Greek mythology. Greek mythology sort of uh, usurp Egyptian mythology. And I know that you mentioned Aurora has has a Greek name as, as well, um, from the old Titanakami, um, lives on today in the Aurora Borealis, I suppose. Um, what is the Greek slash Egyptian or other version of Lucifer, if you know? Right. Uh, well, in the Greek, possibly Phosphorus uh, would have been the the Greek association. Phosphorus was the god of the planet Venus, and again, uh, a youth um, often depicted um, carrying a torch or in some way as bringing forth the light. So Phosphorus would be the Greek equivalent uh, to this, sometimes referred to as Heosphorus as well, um, but the same deity. And the same adjective was used to describe both. They were both described as being the dawn bringer or light bringing, the same sort of association. Um, so yes, Phosphorus would have been the Greek um, equivalent. And you can actually find some some images, you know, from, from sort of the, the classic, you know, from the past, um, from ancient Greek vases and things like that, but also from the sort of Renaissance period, you can find some artwork uh, depicting the two, and you see that they are identical in appearance. Any Egyptian or Canaanite equivalent that we know of? It's a good question. Uh, I'd say that they're probably, that's not really my area of expertise, but there probably are similar figures in other mythologies as well, because these some of these figures are sort of in an archetypal sense, tend to take on forms or personifications, even if they didn't derive from ones from other cultures. We know that the Roman deities did derive from the Greek deities, or at least at some point they were merged into into one another or took on the attributes of one another. Um, in some other mythologies, of course, they derived um, independently, completely independently, but often we do find deities of youth who are associated with light right and that's what this is leading towards right this association and my second question maybe a little bit more banal but you know once you gave the image i mean one that stuck in my head though the gender was reversed is different is lady liberty the statue of liberty i mean it looks like a, a giant torchbearer um now i know that our lucifer is male uh Lady Liberty is obviously a woman, um, but is there any connection there, or is it just it was just an artist who decided to make something? Quite possibly, uh, it's. I, I think the torch has has become a symbol in the Olympics as well. Mm -hmm. It's become um, a symbol of of hope, especially. Uh, I think hope there, hope perhaps of the return of the dawn, hope again for good times, hope of good times to come to get us through the darkness, the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I think a lot of that is encapsulated in the Lady of Liberty, but also in the Olympic Games, the sort of light, victory, hope. These are similar ideas which are being encapsulated there. And that's certainly the, the theosophical perspective. Lucifer was seen to be the light bringer, but light here is the truth, gotcha. the truth bringer, 
bringing the truth and casting away the shadows of ignorance. And it's an interesting, it's an, it's an interesting picture in which the sh shadows are often used in philosophy and in mythology as representing ignorance. We also find this, of course, in, in Plato's Allegory of the Cave, a very famous example mm -hmm. in which the sun is the truth, but the shadows on the wall are the, you know, caused by the, caused by the, yes, the artificial lights, if you like, are the, the lies or the ignorance. And so I think there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of similar ideas found throughout various cultures and, and traditions um, and in modern traditions like the Olympic Games and in the Statue of Liberty, certainly. So how did Lucifer go from being the bringer of truth and light to becoming synonymous with the uh, ultimate evil? Right. Well, there's a few potential reasons. If we were just to go with the simplest, uh, most boring explanation, it's the, the fact that this was misinterpreted in the text. The king of Babylon fell from the heavens. This was misinterpreted as Satan fell from the heavens, or Lucifer fell from the heavens and became Satan. It's the kind of narrative we might find in evangelical, uh, modern evangelical Christianity. And therefore, Lucifer was suddenly, of no fault of his own, uh, correlated with the, the devil, with Satan, with no prior reason. But there is a much more interesting and perhaps a darker interpretive um, interpretation. So if Lucifer is the light bringer, he who brings forth the light of truth to dispel the shadows, and then suddenly we take the truth, Lucifer being symbolic of the truth, and we twist the truth into being the great liar, the great, the great deceit. And suddenly the truth is the lie in the perspective of the world's greatest religious institution, the church of the time. Right. And so what's very interesting is that this figure symbolizing truth was suddenly turned into the devil, into the, the, the symbol of lies and ignorance so that something else could be put in the place of, of the symbol of truth. Uh, namely the authority of the church. And so it's quite an interesting um, twist there. If there was perhaps a slightly darker, more intentional or conspirational um, reason behind the use of Lucifer. It, it's, it's very interesting that you bring that up because, listen, I, I am certainly not as well-read or scholarly in these areas as you are or probably any of my guests who have talked in, in these areas are. But... You know, they always say that the the first, the, the biggest trick that the devil ever played on us was uh, was convincing us he didn't exist. I've often thought, no, that wasn't the the, the first trick. The, the, I think that the biggest trick, of, I thought about this. I don't think it, I don't know it, but I, I, I play with this thought that the, that the biggest trick that the devil ever played on us is that the devil was in fact God and the, the, the true God was actually the devil and what a spin that would be. And it's sort of what you were just saying, uh, but it's interesting because it's like, I, I don't know, there's other, there's like clues that they're almost like in plain sight. Like in, in the Bible, Judas who betrayed Jesus walked around, you know, wanders the earth forever. Nobody knows where he is, but people said, that's the first vampire. Jesus brought Lazarus back to, back to life. He went into his cave, came out, wandered around, Nobody, I've asked scholars, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, he just lived the rest of his life. No, nobody knows. 
again, it, it almost sounds like vampirism, you know, like 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 Lazarus is, is a vampire. The on some of the most famous Catholic churches, you have them being guarded by gargoyles. Gargoyles don't look like angels to, to me. They look like demons to me. Um, sure. The show I love, Midnight Mass, where you had, you had a very devout older uh, priest confuse a vampire for an angel. Now, am I a little bit vampire obsessed? Yes, I am. Um, am I lately really interested in gargoyles? Gargoyles, yes, I am. But most of it is because I'm thinking, why are gargoyles guarding churches? And, and, it, and it, it, it seems to me it's like, it's almost like a clue in plain sight. It's almost like that Church of Satan thing where they're saying, we're not, we're, we're, we're atheists. Church of Satan, you know, uh, metaphorical middle finger to you, but, but we really are Satan, Satanists. It's like, is, like, is there any true, is there any possibility of truth as any kernel of truth to that, that we all got sort of scammed along the way? I mean, I don't know when it happened, was it, you know, during the, uh, Old Testament days, was it just in Christianity? Does that mean Islam is also corrupted because it, it, it came later? I mean, you know, I don't, I know very big questions uh, to ask one person. But something really interesting from what you've just said about corruption, about religion becoming corrupted. Well, if we think about it, what was one of the, the key things that Jesus did in the New Testament? He stood up against the organized religion yeah. out of the time and said it is corrupted. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yes. And what did what did the Buddha do? The Buddha was raised to be this, you know, have this luxurious life as a, a priest and to be raised in the Hindu tradition. But he stood up and he said, actually, I, I disagree with the traditions of the time. I, I disagree with the, I think the teachings have become corrupted. So we have these religious figures doing this throughout history. And yet then we find idea like it's almost like the church after Jesus became the very thing that he fought against. Right, these giant opulent buildings Wealth beyond compare, states without borders. Yeah, meanwhile, Jesus was raised by Ascends, which are sort of like hippies. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I think one of his quotes was, as long as there are two of you there, I am with you. I mean, you know, and that's been interpreted to say you need a giant congregation. I think he meant exactly the opposite, that, uh, you know, you know, you know, I don't know why I needed two instead of one, but I don't think it meant you need a room of 300 people. And where did Jesus used to meet his disciples? Under the open sky. Mm -hmm. yeah, they, they would have conversations, you know, on, on a boat or on a mountain. On a, You know, they, they were under the open sky in nature. They weren't con constrained in, a, in, this, in this artificial edifice. And I, I think there's something symbolic there as well. The idea that, that Jesus had his, you know, gave his uh, teachings in the world, so to speak, in nature. And there was that natural element to them, but modern, many modern uh, Christians go inside something artificially constructed to perhaps take in what could be called artificially constructed teachings as well, uh, which sometimes don't really fit well with our common understanding of the natural world. Uh, whereas I don't think anything Jesus said contradicted the natural world or, or the, the things that we would um, consider to be in line with with nature, in line with um, the, the way the world really works. And so I certainly think that the church became corrupted. And of course, we find that the, the terrible 
occurrences of the burning times and the, the persecution of witches who in nine cases or in, in almost all cases were not actually witches but just you know the neighbor you didn't like or, you know, something like this and so we, we find these yeah rather terrible crimes being committed uh, throughout history um somewhat of a support for science but then again at certain points uh, uh disregard for scientific truths that didn't fit very well with the narrative, um, an unwillingness to progress. And I do think things have improved somewhat in in, t in that regard in the church uh, lately. Um, but of course, there are many other. Yeah, well, that's probably more because of coming uh, about. That's yeah. probably more because of cameras and TVs and things right, like right, else. I mean, right, it's, right. it's hard to, to, yeah, to adapt. It's, it's hard to burn people on camera and, 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 and look like you're doing the right thing. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just think that this sort of, I'll just call it the great con uh, theory, which is, you know, it's, I'm sure I'm not the first person to think of it by any means, but this great con theory to me, you know, makes a lot more sense in what's going on in the world than it's part of God's plan. Because I don't think that what's been going on in the world well ever makes sense for any sort of, of any sort of God's plan. Unless God's a sadist. Right, yes. And going back to, to what we were discussing regarding the the interpretation of Lucifer in the Bible, it's actually very interesting to find that Jesus is also referred to by the same word, the morning star, in the book of Revelation. He's referred to as the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. And yet here, this term is interpreted in a positive light as referring to Jesus, because it quite clearly does. Whereas in the other passages, it's interpreted as referring to Satan. So it's very interesting that the same vocabulary, according to, according to the evangelical perspective, the same vocabulary is being used for both Jesus and Satan, which doesn't make much sense to me. And so I, I do think um, that an association between Lucifer and Jesus in terms of the Lucifer being the the Roman deity of, of youth and light who brings truth to the world and Jesus is actually quite appropriate. I don't think there's any um, reason to try and characterize one as being Satan and other as referring to Jesus. I think uh, both are appropriate terms to refer to a bringer of light, someone who brings truth to the world. That is great. Um... All right, I'm going to stop my meanderings and let you continue with your presentation. I, no promises. That's my intention. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, and interesting, you know, I I, I did um, all I mentioned before in terms of, you know, the church, the, the corruption, some of the points you brought up as well. And I'm saying all that interesting, interestingly, as a cleric myself, I am a, a cleric of a different church, not the Catholic Church, and that's something you asked me at the beginning, which I didn't uh, quite have a chance to touch on yet. But I'm a cleric of the Old Catholic Apostolic Church, which yes, is thank you. Please, please tell us what that is. I think you're about to right, and there is a relationship to the Catholic Church. It broke away from the Catholic Church um, some two hundred years ago, and so what happened was um, there were disagreements over various doctrines, mostly to do with the doctrines relating to papal authority and infallibility, because it was really around that time, around the 1850s, when the Catholic Church started insisting on 
the infallibility of the Pope, the, the papal authority, the absolute papal authority. Um, and certain groups of certain bishops disagreed and separated, becoming the old Catholic Church, referring to old as in the policies or the doctrines before these new doctrines were introduced in one sense, but also referring to old in the sense of going back to the time of Christ in a more fundamental sense, going back before all of these um, controversies, before the corruption of the church. So by old, we could also interpret that as pre-corruption, the church in its pre-corruption period in the time of Christ and immediately following Christ. So the old Catholic church was quite... Um, it, it was it was very different. It ended up being a very different entity from the Catholic Church, and in fact, ended up being rather progressive and liberal, despite calling itself old uh, and sounding rather conservative in its name. It actually ended up being and, and remains a very progressive church. Many now, there's not just one old Catholic Church. So the old Catholic Apostolic Church, which I belong to, is one of many old Catholic churches so old catholic is a denomination mm. much like baptist or roman catholic or uh, anglican or something like this so there are many churches that exist within under the umbrella of old catholic but all of them hold apostolic succession okay what's that mean well apostolic succession means that the the presiding bishop and all bishops um have go derive a direct line going back to uh, Peter. Oh, okay. Uh, now, direct line, do you mean DNA bloodline, or do you just mean the philosophies, the teachings? Um, as, in, as in each bishop has been consecrated by a, an, an anointed by a bishop who has likewise been, by, by the laying on of hands, uh, by a bishop who has likewise been uh, in the apostolic succession. So one church, say the the old Catholic Apostolic Church, derives um, we could say ancestry from various, just like a family tree, from various other churches. So some of these churches include the Roman Catholic Church, in that there, at some point in history there was a Roman Catholic who anointed the bishop who would later go on to anoint another bishop who would go on to anoint a bishop who broke off and founded the old Catholic Apostolic Church, right? And also deriving um, a lineage from the Anglican Church and interestingly from a church called the Liberal Catholic Church. Now, the Liberal Catholic Church, the history of that is the most fascinating in terms of what I'm here to, to share today because the Liberal Catholic Church came about when two Anglican priests... Church of England, that is, two yeah. priests of the Church of England, um, Bishop Charles Webster Leadbeater and Bishop James Wedgwood, joined the Theosophical Society. And when this happened, it created a bit of a controversy. Suddenly the Anglican Church... Right, right. So they suddenly the discussion came about, can you be a member of an occult organization and be a, a good Anglican priest? And while they were they were not officially banned from being Anglicans. You know, they, they didn't, they weren't kicked out of the church. They were sort of looked down upon quite badly by, you know, by their superiors. And so they ended up breaking away from that church, but having been 
consecrated in the line, the, 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 the succession from the Apostle Peter, they were able to continue to um, anoint bishops, right? So once you're, the rule is once you're a bishop, if you're still a valid bishop, you haven't lost that title of being a bishop, you can anoint someone else as a bishop. And that could be in a different church. You, you could you can switch, you can change, make your own church if you like. It, it, even the Roman Catholic Church accepts it as being valid, but uh, I forget the exact term, but it's basically uh, valid but illicit is the term. So it basically means it's, okay, they're real bishops. Every bishop which is appointed outside of the Roman Catholic Church is, in the Roman Catholic perspective, a real bishop, but they're illicit. They're sort of unusual. They're not the usual way of becoming a bishop, unless they're women, because the Roman Catholic Church doesn't uh, allow for women bishops or women priests, whereas the old Catholic and liberal Catholic churches do. Mm. And so the liberal Catholic Church, from which the old Catholic Apostolic Church um, descends, uh, had a lot of theosophical principles, the same basic ideas uh, that are found in theosophy, but, um, but, but put forward in Christian language, right? So the same philosophy as theosophy, the same worldview as theosophy, but clothed in the language of Christianity, if you like. Can I ask and a couple of basic questions? Like on, and these are just basic principles. Does the old Catholic Church does it believe in the Trinity, for example? Yes, so it's a Trinitarian, okay. a Trinitarian denomination. Uh, does it believe in the Virgin Mary? Um, there are actually a variety of opinions regarding that, so it's not one of the, say, key key doctrines, so, not, not perhaps a key doctrine. There, there have been certain liberal Catholics who have actually written about uh, them in a inter uh, symbolic interpretation of virgin. Virgin meaning not physically, but spiritually, a spirit, spiritual virginity, you could say. So no, nothing that you'd go to war for a hundred years over or, or no. complete schisms. Uh, I suspect this will be the, fan the same answer, but let's see. Uh, what is your church's view on the role and the title of Mary Magdalene? Right. Well, again, uh, Mary Magdalene has been sort of demonized in some denominations, hasn't she? Or in, yes, some, she in some areas. Um, although she obviously had some kind of close relationship uh, with Christ. I, I would say that the church's position is essentially the traditional one that she was a um, a, a prostitute who had, who, who Jesus um, encountered and brought into, you know, brought, brought into salvation, brought into a better life. Um, but I am aware and especially in some occult circles, there are discussions of perhaps a deeper relationship. Yeah, they had to say that she was mad, they were married, or yes, had yes, kids, and all exactly. that. Exactly, yeah. So that's different, that's not the church's position, but then the church isn't very dogmatic in terms of the interpretation of scripture. In fact, clerics in the old Catholic Apostolic Church, and in many liberal Catholic churches, are encouraged to seek their own interpretations of doctrine and so, so uh, liberal. quite a lot of leeway. Liberal, yeah, liberal capital, I mean, lowercase l, liberal in the classical, tolerant, yes. tolerant, tolerant of different opinions, as long as you basically leave it. So Mary Magdalene, I, I hate to make this into a trope, but to keep it, hook her with a heart of gold, basically. Right. You know, okay, that, well, fair, I asked the question, you, got, you gave the answer, fair enough. Uh, but, you know, not someone who, 
you know, shared the Sangriel and, and took it off to France and continued the line of Solomon and Christ right. and David and all that. And uh, although some some theosophical writers have gone, you know, that towards that sort of perspective oh, sure. as we, well. I, yes, I, so I only I, variety. I probably I mean, got started on this whole thing just like most people did with the Da Vinci Code. I mean, who, I don't right. know any of this stuff. <laughs> I mean, thank you, Dan Brown. Um, but. Uh, yeah, otherwise, I don't think I ever would have given it a, uh, even a single piece of thought. I, I, to be frank with you, growing up, I'm not sure I knew the difference between the Virgin Mary or Mary Magdalene. I probably thought they were the same person. Um, and, it, yes, well, yeah, sorry. From my perspective, um, I, I can't I can't say to speak for the church as such because the church does have quite a diversity of perspectives, but we all still manage to work together. We still are shared in some fundamental beliefs about. You know, you know the, the the message of Jesus. I think it all comes down to the message of Jesus, and that's something I've always liked. I I I, I for a while I sort of described myself more as a, a you know a, a follower of Jesus than a Christian in the traditional sense, um, because I've always had a bit of a, a love and hate relationship with uh, Christianity over mostly over you know some extreme interpretations of things. Um, before finding this tradition and finding in this tradition, I'm given quite a lot of freedom of interpretation, and so is everyone else, and that's a great thing. But we all think, hey, Jesus was a good guy, and he said some really good things that can make the world a better place. And not only Jesus, but so did some other great guys in history, like the Buddha. And you know, it's not just it's not exclusive. You know, it's there's room for everyone, and it's just a tradition. It's um, it, this is not the one right way. This church is not the, the only way to living a better life or to heaven or whatever, however you may interpret it. There are many paths. And I think that these many paths all lead to the same destination, I think. And, I, I you know, it, it's a cultural thing as well. Christianity is a big part of my culture. Um, and being, you know, British-born um, of I've got uh, coming from a line of Anglican priests, actually, and um, throughout my family history, but being raised in a Baptist uh, environment, you know, I think it's my culture and it's my cultural lens through which I can interpret reality and interpret the truth. Um, so, it, yeah, you know, it's the wisdom of, of my forebears, the wisdom of those who came before. If I was born in India, I would be a a Hindu or a, Hindu or a Buddhist or, or something. Yeah, and I would all likewise be able to discover truth through those lens. What is the... I mean, first of all, the way you're describing it, it's not, I think the Unitarian Church is an American phenomenon, uh, but it sounds a little bit Unitarian, like very, very yes. tolerant. Uh, is, is Unitarian a subset of your church or is it just a similar doctrine, uh, different yeah. churches? They're actually not related, but they've ended up coming to some quite similar conclusions. I would say that I am more Unitarian than the average Old Catholic, um, perhaps. And also, I mentioned there's a slight distinction between Old Catholic and Liberal Catholic, but my church, the Old Catholic Apostolic Church, has derives from both of these, so it ends up being a bit of a mixture, you know, of both the Old Catholic and the Liberal Catholic tradition. The old want... Catholic tradition oh, is slightly more conservative, um, slightly more traditional than the liberal Catholic. The liberal Catholic is the one that derived from the theosophical 
the two the two members of the Theosophical Society who separated from the Anglican Church. So the difference is the liberal Catholic tradition comes from the Church of England and from the Theosophical Society. The old Catholics come from the Roman Catholic Church. So we can see how there might be a bit of a difference yeah. from those two. Yeah, and my church derives from both of those lineages. Do you have like sort of the same sort of rank? Are you priests, bishops, cardinals, pope? Do you, yes. you have a do you have uh, a similar hierarchy? No, no pope. The highest is the patriarch. The patriarch, um, who is an archbishop. So the patriarch is the um, the top, the top rank, if you like. Uh, well, that is yes. like, that's sorry, that is Anglican, right? That's the that's their highest level too, as archbishop, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's quite similar in structure. It's very similar in structure to the Anglican Church, and and my church is from the United Kingdom as well. So, um, yeah, there's some, you know, some similarities between the two. Very interesting. Um, okay, let's try and get back to our friend Lucifer, uh, right. person or otherwise, or a real figure or otherwise. And I failed in my job of, of putting the pin in where we uh, where we first got off key. But hopefully right. you did, because I, I have a feeling that you have a more organized brain than I do. Right. Well, we were touching on a few things uh, where we, when we left off, weren't we? Um, we mentioned the idea that uh, maybe there's a similarity between the figure of Jesus and the figure of Lucifer in as Luc- when, when we're interpreting Lucifer as the Roman uh, say deity of the dawn type into uh, you know because we we have a similar idea with Jesus being referred to as um, well the son of God and then we have this deity who's sort of a dawn deity dawn being obviously indicative of the sun and sun and God often being associated with one another so I think there's some really interesting um, connections Jesus saying I am the light as well, and Lucifer being the light bringer. So it's also worth mentioning that in in theosophy, there's a broad range of interpretation as well. So the, the Theosophical Society is completely non-dogmatic, so people come into this having many different interpretations of what things mean. And for me, a lot of these things are quite symbolic. They're archetypal, and it doesn't devalue them. A lot of people think if something is non-literal, that it suddenly loses its value. But for me, something which has a deep symbolic, um, deep symbolic reality, which in some way transforms my life or transforms the collective consciousness of the world, is much more meaningful than trying to force something into a literal narrative that just doesn't make sense. So you, you touched upon the virgin birth before and for me it it's a much more miraculous event to interpret this as a kind of spiritual um, virginity you know a spiritual purity than to try and say biology didn't apply you know in that in that instance so for me miracles can be more on the symbolic level but they're still miracles because they still transform the world and you we touched upon magic earlier and we could even Go to someone who's not very Christian to get an idea of this. There's a quote from Alistair Crowley, who uh, has stated that magic is the art. Um, ma- magic. I'm trying to remember the quote now. Art, uh, magic is the art of causing change in occurrence with will. Right. Mm, that's a good and quote. So, 
that's sort of a definition of miracle as well, isn't it? The sure idea is. that if it causes transformation, then it's magic, or if it causes transformation, then it's a miracle, we could say. So that might be my interpretation of a miracle. So when I'm looking at figures like Jesus, I mean, I, I think there's various levels of Jesus. There's Jesus, the historical person, right? But Jesus, the historical person, is very different than the white Jesus that we find, you know, with the long brown hair and the blue eyes um, on all our Christmas cards and, and you know, in the, in the movies and so on. So this sure. is quite a different Jesus than the Aramaic Jesus, um, who would have been dark-skinned and um, certainly didn't speak, you know, American English, although some some American conservatives or evangelicals might be surprised to hear that. And Ar um, so Aramaic is sort of, was it, sort of like northern Israel, Lebanon, Syria, uh, a part of the world? Area. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah, that's right. Exactly. It would have been, you know, a, a sort of variety, a variant of this language. Basically, like understanding. A, sort of like a, yeah. per, you know, traditional Persian uh, features kind of. Derived language, okay. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not that I'm too so, caught up in, in, in that. I'm just trying to, you know, figure out. I mean, you know, obviously we have yeah. our, our picture of Jesus, you know, the James Caviezel, you know, in Passion of the right, Christ right. or whatever. Exactly. And then, 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 of course, there's Black Jesus. And then, you know, and then there's Neil Gaiman's version of American Gods where, you know, Jesus is everyone to everything. And there's a Jesus yeah. that looks like everyone, which is all of which suits me fine. I'm just trying to figure Like, I, I know Aramaic as a language. I, I, don't quite understand, you know, if there were people called the Arameans or, you know, or, or if they were yes. precursors, you know, or anything like that. I'm not very good on my linguistic history from that region of the world. You know, ask me for the, the Indo-European sort of side of right. things. I, you know, I'm a bit more schooled than that. But yeah, no, I, I do know he, he spoke some, you know, variant of that language yeah, is, from my understanding or likely would have. I'm um, no expert either, but I have had people on who are, and apparently Aramaic, yeah. I think a lot of people think Aramaic is related to Sanskrit, which is related to, I guess, Hindi. Right. Um, and it's not. Which is related like, to Latin itself, uh, you know, Indo-European, but, but yeah. it's not, apparently. Yeah, that's right. right. Like, apparently Aramaic came more from the uh, African languages. Um, right. Uh, yeah. it, it, I, I cannot explain the, the family trees of languages. They make no sense to me. It makes no sense to me how German and Indian are more related right. than, than uh, you know, say, Indian and Aramaic. But you'll just have to trust me that that's what the linguists say. Right. Uh, yeah, so as you probably picked up, I'm quite a fan of genealogies. You know, I was just explaining the apostolic succession and how that all sure. fits into each other. I actually also love the family tree of, of languages as a, I, I'm an English teacher language is sort of my, my area professionally. So I'm also very fascinated in that. Mm. Plus I'm a, a bit of an amateur genealogist. I've studied my family history uh, in quite some well, detail you know as well. You so. might have just booked yourself for a second show down the line for linguistics and maybe, uh, maybe a quick primer on how to study one's own genealogy other than doing ancestry right. DNA. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're willing, if you, if you haven't been scarred by this. <laughs> Yes, but I can. I, I was going to say I can see how that would be very confusing for some people who don't think along those lines. You know, it's just a like for me. There's, there's, it, it's like mathematics. For me, mathematics is something that is completely foreign to me. I cannot get my head around mathematics, and I know for some people 
genealogy is a bit like what mathematics, mathematics is for me. So it's not everyone's cup of tea, certainly. Certainly but, not. Um, but everything's a yeah. language, and once you understand that language, it, it, it helps. So if we can demystify the language, it might make it right. easier for people to go on their own journeys. But, but you gave a quote from Alistair Crowley, which I think is a terrific segue. Um, and so I know this isn't necessarily the purpose of the show, but can you distinguish at all what Luciferianism is versus what the church of Satan is, at least as to your understanding? Because I cannot imagine that in your studies, although this show is not about Luciferianism, that you haven't had to tangle with these questions before to, to, to further your studies. Uh, I, I do know a, a bit about Luciferianism and the Church of Satan and various branches of Satanism. I have known Satanists before various denominations. I've known Luciferians before. I've had some fascinating conversations with them. Um, again, I'm a bit of a, an unusual Christian. <laughs> by, by the way, if you can refer any of them to me, there's a, you know, there's always a referral prize, which is sure. basically my appreciation, yeah. but you know, Right, right. So, I, I would love to have those folks on Wicca. Anything, any, any, any anything yeah, that's Wicca same. as well. Yeah, yeah. Wicca is another very interesting um, well, uh, philosophy, religion, depending on how you interpret it. Well, if you um, could sort of define those three, and hopefully without interruption by me. Certainly, let's start with Luciferianism, perhaps because that's my that's my favorite. If I was to <laughs> to pick one, so Luciferianism is essentially just a a Gnosticism. It's a tradition of Gnosticism. It comes under the Gnostic umbrella. And there, Lucifer is not related to Satan, not related to the devil, not even particularly related to the Christian tradition. He's more, it's more a religion constructed around the Roman interpretation of Lucifer. Lucifer is a guardian. Lucifer is a liberator the light bringer, a guiding light or guiding spirit which casts away the darkness, right? But obviously, Luciferianism would not have come about without the Christian interpretation. So it's a really interesting idea where they've kind of, from my understanding, they've kind of distinguished themselves from the Judeo-Christian worldview and yet are a product of the Judeo-Christian worldview, although you wouldn't know it from their beliefs or from their practices they're more much more like an offshoot of gnosticism in you know in practice unintended right? consequences yeah yeah so i i think it was certainly a reaction um to the it, it, it was a reaction to the church's interpretation of lucifer with satan and a kind of uh it, it's a bit like the you get a good example would be this. There's this movement called Reclaim the Swastika, just to give another example, because the swastika, before its association with Hitler and Nazism, is an, a great ancient um, Hindu symbol. It, it symbolizes the cyclic change, uh, eternal reoccurrence. It's a powerful spiritual symbol, which was misused for really you know terrible purposes. Well, Hitler knew what he was doing. He, he reversed yeah, he it. Yeah. He used a reversed he image reversed of it. it. So yeah, but and it, he was very well. He was also very well schooled in some Eastern philosophies and very interested in, and especially some of you know some of the the, the Nazis. Well, you you will know this because I'm sure you know you must have had speakers on sort of occult Nazism 
before on your show. But Not as much as I would have liked to, but I'm trying to work right. on it. Uh, but uh, it, it's right. weird because we're sort of living through that same thing right now. Listen, I mean, you know, I'm I'm about twice your age, uh, but both of us are within the age frame of the time where we only grew up knowing the swastika as one thing being associated with Nazism. But right now, the same thing is being done to the OK symbol. You know, especially here in the U.S., yeah. it, it's being it's being associated, being usurped, uh, corrupted by white supremacists. As, and like you can't use the right. OK symbol. The OK symbol goes back millennia to, I think, pre-Hindu sort of right. I- Indian traditions. I mean, it, it's, it's yeah. the most innocuous uh, symbol in the world. And now it's like, you know, something that, We've been hardwired to do okay, but now it, it, now you have to think about it because people might think that you are a uh, a neo Nazi, and right. and and you know and and that is the the Nazi the fascist playbook is to usurp a symbol. Um, right. It's 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 crazy, but yeah. And I said I was going to interrupt you, and there I go. No problem. It's, it's a really relevant example, you know, like the swastika, like the okay symbol, Lucifer was sort of taken from something be- to be something which was beautiful and turned into something malicious and, and, and dark. And then Luciferianism is sort of like a an attempt to reclaim Lucifer, if you like. So, yeah, there's various Luciferian um, churches and some of them are a bit more on the Gnostic side. Some of them have a bit more satanic influence. Uh, some of them have a bit more pagan influence. So there's a few variety of traditions, but yeah, they, they tend to have a big focus on freedom, freedom of will, of, on enlightenment, on sort of a um, left-hand path, slightly more towards the left-hand path, if you know what I mean by the distinction between left-hand and right-hand. I do, um, but the audience might on, not. The audience may not, yeah, so... Uh, the basic distinction is left-hand path tends to focus a bit more on the self, on the enlightenment of the self, perhaps, whereas right-hand path perhaps focuses a bit more on perhaps what we could call God or union with God uh, might be a way of interpreting that. Therefore, many of the mainstream religions might be interpreted as being a bit more right-hand path where one needs to go through some sort of kind of self-sacrifice in order to find union with the deity whereas in the left-hand path it's more that one is one creates oneself into a deity with self-deification and thereby finds union with deity by through this process of self-deification so yeah that's sort of the fundamental distinction from my understanding but Luciferianism is more on the left-hand path, um, the worship of the inner self and of one's potential. Um, and it also to is not an entirely selfish path, also to encourage the development of this within others as so, well. So it's not nihilism. It's, it's more yeah. like meditation instead of ritual. Yes, um, I'd say meditation maybe is at the heart of it, but of course ritual is also important in Luciferianism as a method for self-transformation. Okay, so uh, how about the Church of Satan? How is that different? So the Church of Satan is very different in that it was founded as a bit more of a shock group, um, I think, from my interpretation. So the, the Church of Satan took all the symbols of Christianity and inverted them, 
right, and, and use the traditional symbols of Satanism. So the Church of Satan tried to be, in its outward appearance, it tried to be exactly what the, the Church used to say the Satanists were doing in their descriptions of the, the Black Mass and, and so on. So the goat became the symbol, you know, the, the literally doing the sort of satanic rituals, the, the, the focus on things like sex and so on that the church claimed. So all these things that were claimed during the, the witch trials, which never really happened, but which the church said that happened. The church of Satan does those things. Except the human sacrifice, of course, but you know they they do do most many of the other things that the church said that Satanists were doing, but which never really existed back then, is what the Church of Satan tries to do. But and, and its fundamental uh, philosophy, it's not they don't actually believe in a figure of Satan. Um, they are non-theistic Satanists. They believe in the self. So a little bit similar in some ways to the fundamental idea of luciferianism but with a really different outward appearance right so the church of satan believes in yeah believes the atheist but they believe in the self in egoism perhaps is what we could call it in the development of the self and survival of the fittest so, so, they're so also, they are more anarchist hedonism nihilism whichever uh, then okay and the luciferians have a it's meditation they do have rituals and traditions but maybe not the ritualistic rites of passage like baptism or bar mitzvah or some of the other things that it's 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 more within yourself rather than within the confines of an institutionalized church-like structure Okay. And the Church of Satan is social Darwinist um, in the sense that they take the evolutionary principles um, applied from from Darwin's understanding of, of um, natural selection and so on, and they apply this to a social setting, um, meaning that they encourage the survival of the strong, but the destruction of the weak. Um, so it's a bit more of a a brutal philosophy right. in that sense than you might find in uh, in many mainstream religions. It's the it's the Hobbesian nightmare, right? Right, exactly. And so that life that's is uh, everyone knows the the quote or some version that life is short, brutish, and short. Uh, yeah. I said short twice, but anyway, everyone knows some yes. version of that, but they they don't know that the rest of the line is without God. Uh, so it's right. not like Hobbes was saying the world sucks. They're saying he was saying the world sucks without God, basically. But I guess theirs right. is uh, uh, is is just the, the first part of just that. the first part. Right. Take God out of the equation. Exactly. That's right. So um, yeah. So I'm I'm not on the personally. That's not the kind of philosophy I. I support. No, I, th- I think that's been well established. <laughs> yeah, <it's it>. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I think it, it might be the opposite of the theosophical uh, philosophy. I would in say almost it, every way. I yeah. would. I would say just from the ninety minutes or so I spent with you that that, that is uh, certainly the case. Um, the two questions. One is: Do these do Luciferians and the Church of Satan are there denominational? Are there different sects of these? Beliefs as well. Do they have subsets like different sects, like the more traditional churches do? Yes. Um, well, first of all, we should say that the Church of Satan is a one of these denominations within Satanism. Okay. So Satanism is much broader than the Church of Satan. And first of all, it has two main categories. 
which are quite different from one another, theistic and non-theistic. So the Church of Satan is a one denomination within non-theistic Satanism, meaning that they don't actually believe in the figure Satan. Then you also get theistic Satanists, um, who I also don't really understand, uh, but they, they sort of take the modern interpretation of Satan as described by evangelical Christians and then worship that Satan. So uh, for me personally, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's their, you know, that, that's their belief. That's their um, And a lot of the same, a lot, a lot of the beliefs remain between non-theistic, I mean, I'd say a lot of the practices and philosophy and worldview between non-theistic and theistic Satanists are the same. How do you spell so the, the word focus. theistic that you're saying? Um, theistic, as in T-H-E-I-S-T-I-C. Okay, so like just... theism, theistic, right? Gotcha. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so referring to the belief in the God or, or atheism, yeah. So, so we could say the atheistic Satanists and the Satanists that literally believe in a deity, right? Right, as with, the, with Satan or as the devil, as the, the their deity. So basically uh, anarchists or whatever. Um, yeah. You said that Satanism is, is Satanism different than what we've already talked about then? You're meaning the church of Satan, Lucifer. Yeah, you you sort of put Satanism sort of at the top of this pyramid. Uh, Well, well, I'd say there's two separate religions here. There's Satanism and Luciferianism, and they are two separate religions. Within the Satanism, there is the Church of Satan. And there are other groups, groups of Satanists who literally believe in Satan and other groups that don't believe in Satan. There's, there's a variety of groups all within the umbrella of Satanism, but their general overall philosophy is a focus on the self, on the left-hand path, on survival of the fittest. These are, tend to be the focuses okay. of these groups. So we've covered it just sort of in the reverse yeah. order. We didn't start right. with the term Satanism. Okay, got it. And lastly, if you could sort of tell us, and I know, I, I actually know that there's lots of different kinds of Wicca and witch and things like that. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not even going to ask you to, but if you know any Wicca who are willing to talk to me of any group, I, I would love to talk to them all. Sure. Um, but can you briefly tell us what is Wicca? And also if there's anything else that I haven't brought up that we should know sure. about in this vein. Well, first of all, there's an important distinction between Wicca and witchcraft. Wicca is a denomination of witchcraft. So witchcraft is the broader, um, yeah, the broader term, the umbrella term. And even that can be interpreted in two ways. So the first definition might be a religion dating back to, to ancient times, a religious, a, a sort of religious, uh, paganism, which involves the practice of magic and some kind of attunement to nature. That's the broad definition of witchcraft. Like shamanic, druid. Yeah, shamanic type side. Um, Yes, it's similar, related to druidism, but not not druidism. Druidism is a separate category because that also comes under the category of pagans. So there's a broader category there. But some people interpret witchcraft as the practice of magic. I think that's the... I think that's an incorrect interpretation, but it's important to note because in some writings you'll find witchcraft used in that second category. I think witchcraft does have a religious element uh, properly defined, but sometimes it could be used in a non-religious sense, in the sense of just the practice of magic, which isn't necessarily religious, right? 
but I prefer to see that more as ceremonial magic or or other various or folk magic perhaps, which can be distinguished from witchcraft, which has a religious or a religious element in the sense that there are gods that one is worshiping and so on. Right. So witchcraft has many many different forms, and Wicca is one of these forms. Um, Wicca traditionally is categorized into a few groups such as the Gardinerian Wiccans, the Alexandrian Wiccans. They have a strict lineage, much like the Christian Church uh, that I mentioned. So in order to, for a Wiccan to be considered a traditional Wiccan, they must go through a period of a year and a day before of training before joining a coven, a coven being a group of witches, witches can be both male and female, unlike in Harry Potter, where there's <laughs> wizards and witches, so they can be male or female. Um, and after this year and a day, they join in the first degree. They initiated into the first degree. It can be longer, but at least a year and a day. Um, they are initiated in a ritual. They become a part of the coven. There are three degrees, and the second degree makes one a priest. The third degree makes one a high priest or priestess. Traditionally, there are 13 members of the coven, but there are, um, yeah, as in gen traditionally in Gardinerian and Alexandrian Wicca, once a coven reaches 13 members and there's more people wanting to join, uh, one of someone else from the group will be chosen to be the leader of a new coven and they'll break off and form a, a new coven under the tradition. There's so that 13 quite, again, that number 13 just right. pops up. Yeah. It's an interesting number, yes, and the numbers are another fascinating topic, maybe for a future, yes, a future yeah. show as yeah. well. Yes, I'm certainly not asking you about that. Yeah, I am well aware. No, of if, that. We, if we started on that, we'd be here another right. <laughs> another two hours just on the topic right. of numbers. So. But, but I do have to ask you, what, what's a warlock then? Is that part of Wicca? Is that just something that was invented warlock, in Dungeons yeah. and Dragons? Yeah, I think, I, warlock's nothing to do with Wicca. Um, it could perhaps refer to a dark magician, a black magician. See, uh, I, doesn't I thought it was a male magic. witch. I guess that's wrong, right? No, no. So in, in Wicca especially, there's the there's the Wiccan creed, which is anit ham nun, do as, do as ye will. Meaning, it comes from Alistair Crowley's do thy will, right? Do as thou will, um, from Philema, the philosophy of Alistair Crowley. Um, but because Alistair Crowley was the grandfather of Wicca in that, um, he was good friends with Gerald Gardner, who founded Wicca. Gardner. He was, yeah, yeah. So there's a relation, and a lot of a lot of the Book of Shadows, uh, the the Wiccan text, was taken from Crowley's writings quite directly. Is the there's Book of Shadows what what people call the grimoire? It's a grimoire. It's a it's a Wiccan grimoire. Yeah. And and what is and what is that book? The title? It's like Necronomicon. I know that's is that the name? Yes, I, I think that's a fictional book, from my understanding, or a a sort of a, a fake that was, um, from my understanding, uh, it's not something I know much about. I'm not sure how serious it was, um, or if it was sort of invented. We get a lot of these texts, which are kind of just, you know, they say they're based on, or they were discovered, you know, this ancient writing has gotcha. been discovered. And it's usually, you know, someone writing in Terror, a terrible parody of 16th century English or you know, <laughs> Middle so, English. So the, Necro, so the Necronomicon, it is not this ancient text. It is more likely a, a fake someone trying to yeah, say. I've, it was I've, I've never heard of it referred to in any serious 
conversation in the magical community or in the pagan community um, by anyone. Whereas a book of shadows is traditionally, it, it's kind of like a, bo- a book which is copied by every student. So let's say you join a coven. It's like the Torah. One of your first tasks. Sorry? It's like the Torah. Yes. So basically, every time someone joins a coven, they need to write down from their teacher, they need to copy the book of shadows. And they copy it, a tradition after tradition after tradition. And it's on, only initiates are allowed to view it, although you can find you know, ones that have been leaked and so on on the internet. Maybe the, the, the traditional the traditionalists claim that they're incomplete. Uh, so I've I was never initiated into Wicca, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I was I was in the outer court of a Gardenerian coven for a while, meaning I was in that first year in the day, but I never went ahead with the initiation. So I, I was sort of in the outskirts of a Wiccan coven for a while um, <laughs> in my teenage years. Yeah, I, I'm going to refrain from my stupid old joke again. Uh, so what do you know about zebras? I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I just like to say zebra in the British way. I mean, I, I feel like I can ask you anything and it'll, you know, it'll be another topic. I, I cannot thank you for your time. I did not really know what I was getting into and it's been an absolute pleasure. You're a font of information. Uh, I'm definitely going to call on you again. Uh, the, the linguistics, uh, uh, genealogy, who knows? I don't know. But uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're part of the, the NACON group. Um, so many fascinating people there. And, and as I've repeated a bunch of times, if you can give me any introductions or referrals to people in any communities that you think are interesting, not just limited to magical, but that is of a particular interest of mine, as is Luciferian. And, uh, you know, I, I just I just love to explore and talk these things and uh, talk about these things and try to be as judgment free as possible. Um, you know, it's for the audience to decide. Uh, you know, I just want to sort of take them on this, you know, uh, informal education as it will and hopefully entertain inform you know and if and if that's considered education so be it but hopefully it entertains and informs so you have done that for me hopefully for the audience as well a pleasure i thank you so much for coming into the uh garden of doom and you are welcome back anytime well thank you jeff it's been a pleasure fascinating conversation i've also enjoyed a lot of what you've had to share today um, which has also given me a lot to think about so it's much appreciated Thank you. That that is the best compliment a guest can give. Lucifer mortus diabolus, nec deus nec arcanus. Der Fürst der
two-for-one package today and save 50%. Price from only $2,998 for two people. Discover the colour and culture of India. Visit the Taj Mahal, Delhi and so much more. Includes flights, accommodation, select meals and more. Private touring option also available. Book now. Call 1300 909 or visit tripadeal.com.au. Decencies apply.